In the history of video games, there have been certain years that have stood out mostly because of their proximity towards a shift in technology, right? So most recently, we think of 2017 as being a year where a lot of really important games came out. And uh, the, the reason for that is it was three or four years after the consoles had released so that people had sort of people, I say developers, had sort of come to terms with technology and were able to use it in new and interesting ways. So we got a lot of really incredible games in 2017. We also look back to 2007, same thing. 1998, I think, is the most interesting year like this, because not only are they coming to terms with specific technology, like the PlayStation, computer graphics cards, and the Nintendo 64, but developers are coming to terms with 3D games as a technology, because 3D games are nascent. They are new. They are a thing that's only been around for a handful of years. So in 1998, we see, for me, it's the most interesting year in the history of video games. But there's three games that kind of stand uh, colossus, so to speak, above all the others. We have Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. We have Metal Gear Solid. And we have Half-Life, which is the subject of today's podcast. I think if you look at those games, particularly, I would say, Metal Gear Solid and Half-Life, I think that they absolutely just sh uh, shifted and changed the landscape of 3D gaming from there on out. And the thing that's notable about that year in those games is that if you were playing Metal Gear Solid in 1998, you had never played a game, anything like Metal Gear Solid. If you were playing Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time in 1998, you had never played a game anything like that before, even the previous Zelda games. This was the first 3D Zelda game. And most importantly, if you were playing Half-Life in 1998, it wasn't just an evolutionary experience, it was a positively revolutionary one. So, Definitely. welcome to the Jump Crouch Game Club. My name's Aaron, I'm here with Oren and Kevin, and we're going to be talking about 1998's seminal first-person shooter classic, Half-Life. You guys ready for this? Definitely. Yep. One of my, one of my favorite games as well. <laughs> along with doom so thousands yeah. of hours played thousands of hours wow okay i don't think i well if not you, even a question for me not even a question okay for me. okay that's that's impressive uh <laughs> so let's just let's get into the spoiler okay so here's the thing right in in tim rogers recent doom video he said that doom was the citizen kane of video games in that you it's difficult to understand everything that comes after without understanding it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think he's partly joking because he hates cliches and that's kind of a cliche thing. But I also think he's serious. And, and I think that is a good framing device for Doom. But I think it's possibly a better framing device for Half-Life. Because much like if you go back and watch Citizen Kane, it's easy to watch it and be like, eh, what's the big deal here? I don't see why people think this is such an important movie until you realize that it's pioneering a, a ton of different uh, techniques, storytelling techniques, uh, you know, photography techniques that, that hadn't been used before and that basically everything afterwards steal or employ to some extent. Um, Half-Life is a game that, that every game that came out after Half-Life is at least a little bit influenced by Half-Life. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I completely agree. The Half-Life effect is unquestionably there in everything. Yeah, it really kind of comes down to everything. Um, just the fact that the game has no real cutscenes, and it's a first-person shooter experience it, that I take it for granted now because a lot of games do that, but seeing that, really kind of contextualizing that in terms of Half-Life 
1998. It is pretty mind-blowing to think of that. Like, to put it even more in perspective about what... Or to, to clarify what I'm saying here, like, before 1998, you really didn't have big, quote-unquote, AAA games that had sort of serious stories. Like, we play Half-Life and serious stories, a little bit of a joke. But, like, like a, sort, a story that took itself serious and, and felt more akin to something you would experience in television or literature or on television, uh, I mean, or in movies. Half-Life's, like, the first game that just starts, takes gets the ball running and saying, hey, we're having a serious story. We're taking our world and our, our narrative seriously. Um, yeah. It, Especially it, if you compare it to, like, the FPSs of the time. Like, Quake right. Story is, like, on, like, the back of the box. <laughs> or Unreal, which came out the same year. And a lot of people thought Unreal was kind of was revolutionary because it, it, it seemed very, you know, again, t- it took itself seriously in a way that other games didn't. But if you put that next to Half-Life, it's not even in the same universe. Um yeah, yeah, and the and the tram ride, which we always talk about. Well, okay, so <laughs> I would say 1998 is like the beginning of quote unquote prestige games. Kevin's gonna hate me for bringing this word, but uh, like whoa, whoa, like, whoa, prestige. <laughs> we banned that word like three podcasts pot- ago. Yeah, so like it, it, it is it's the okay. beginning of of games that are like, look, we're gonna we're gonna showcase our technology, we're gonna showcase our storytelling ability, and uh, and we're gonna give you this holistic package that that gives you. A little bit of everything at, at a really high level. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with that assessment, though, like wholeheartedly. Um, I remember seeing Half-Life for the first time at our cousin's house. He was playing Half-Life Uplink, which is the demo to Half-Life. Mm. I don't know if Half-Life was out yet or if he just didn't have it. But I remember playing it, and the game I had play- I was playing at the time at home was Turok 2. And I remember the first thing I thought about Half-Life was, this is more gory than Turok 2, which I don't know if it actually is more gory than Turok 2. That's a- <laughs> well, it's more realistic. Like, so Half-Life is, is, is the, like the first person shooter that, that looks realistic. It's, it's the, the, the original one. I can't think of a first person shooter before Half-Life that had such an attention to detail and realism. Mm-hmm. And I remember being there at Matt's house watching him shoot yep. Barney in the head. It might have been me shooting yep. Barney in the head. You and see, I was you. like, should Kevin be in the room? Because Kevin was like, <laughs> you, I don't know, you were like 10 years old, <laughs> 8 years old, I'm not sure. You were young, yeah. 7 years young. old. Uh, and I was like, seven. oh, should he even be seeing this? This is a little too violent. Like, And I was a little bit like, whoa, this is this looks realistic. This isn't violence against a uh, a you know a demon. This a dinosaur. Was, we just shot the yeah. nice security guard in the head <laughs> after he tried to help us. Um Barney, in particular, was something that was really noteworthy for me, too. Because, like, I remember we had seen... Because, you know, Doom, Doom and Quake, you're alone. There's no one on your side. And then we saw Mysteries of the Sith, mm-hmm. which had friendly rebel enemies and how that helped you. They, they had no lives, though. They were just enemies that didn't shoot you. Whereas right. Barney talked, and he talked to you. Mm-hmm. And you could silently talk to him. Be like, come with me or not. And he would right. work with you and follow you. And, like, that was, like, mind-blowing to see right. that in a, in a game. Like, we had never seen that before. It, it, like the entire setup of, of uh, so like what makes the tram ride so interesting is is like and this is something we've kind of talked about in other episodes in, in sort of the inverse is that like in get and before that in video games you usually started right in the action like mm-hmm. you, you started going right away you hit the ground running there was no setup there was no context and there wasn't any attention to building mood or sort of establishing a pace to the way that the game was going to tell the story Half-Life's like, look, we're going to start you off on this boring tram ride. It's just an ordinary day. You're going to work, 
and, and the, you know, the tram ride is going to be a little boring, but it's going to give us a chance to show off our technology. It's going to give us a chance to show off the location and start teasing hints of the story. So by the time you get to the end of the tram ride, you have a pretty good idea of where you are and nobody said a word, right? Like it's, it's, it's done all the exposition work for you. And then you get there and mm-hmm. you start talking to Barney and you walk in, you put your suit on and you do these really mundane and interesting or not interesting things that, that would be mechanically boring in any other game. But because you're, you're feeling immersed in the setting and like, you're like, you're, you're buying into the storytelling. It's you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to put my suit on. I'm going to go push this little cart into this thing. And then boom, it explodes. And suddenly the game gets going like a full 45 minutes into the game. Is that- uh, depending on your the pace you take, I'd say. Yeah, like that's. But yeah, if you if you're leisurely exploring Black Mesa, it probably could take you thirty minutes to forty minutes, maybe. Okay, twenty minutes in the game. Like no game, to my knowledge, had done anything like that before. Certainly, no first person shooter had, Definitely had not. taken that time to set up the context, the pacing. Yeah, and I, and Gabe Newell had said that the reason for that was he felt like in a horror story, like looking at Stephen King. He said like specifically was that he found that something was much more scary when things are normal in the beginning. And then they they change, so like that I guess was their idea with that. And I think like for better or worse, that that the tram ride has changed gaming the intros. As I was complaining about in gaming intros, like for better or worse, that's definitely become the de facto standard, undeniably. Well, like the thing that other games have taken is this this attention to like setting the context, setting the tone, showing off the technology, and using different types of storytelling like to establish you in the game at at a at a pace yeah for sure yeah yeah i think i think i'd add what i'd add to that because i i replayed half-life for the podcast and you really feel like you're going into the belly of the beast so to speak as you're playing as you're on that tram ride tram ride because once everything eventually does fall apart you're pretty deep into that base you've Mm -hmm. been on a pretty long tram ride and when you try to get back on that tram it's already gone it's already fallen off the track the whole thing is wrecked so it's another great horror trope where you're just really going incredibly deep into this base that is eventually going to be overtaken by these fourth dimensional creatures and you're going to have to really work your way out of this situation right mm-hmm. definitely yeah. and the other thing that half-life does it, like Prior to that, if a game was going to tell a story, which games were very rarely telling sophisticated stories prior to this, um, it, it usually was d- told discreetly from the gameplay, right? It was a discrete chunk of story, then you had gameplay. Half-Life's like, no, we're going to put you as the central player in the plot, and you're gonna, you are going to be driving the plot during gameplay, and you're going to experience it all around you, and you're, you're never not going to be the player like you're never you're, you're always it's there's no going to be there's not going to be any discrete moments of storytelling it's all storytelling um and I, I think at the time like because no game had really done that before it felt it, it felt just revolutionary like it was just kind of shocking it was like oh it did this is something games can do that that i kind of hadn't even thought about i also like how you have the agency to look away or to look at what's happening like you decide how much of you of the story and stuff you get you know, because you're in full control of Gordon the entire time, mm-hmm. which I always thought was really cool. I'm not gonna lie. When I pl- when I during the story beats now, when I play through the game, I just kind of try to do the silliest stuff possible as the characters oh, yeah. are talking to each other. I just start bouncing around. I pick up a fire extinguisher. I put it on somebody's head. 
uh, <laughs> I throw a box at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the the game plays into that like in the, in the first part when you first talk to the guys at the reception desk you can go under the desk and turn the alarm off under the alarm on they'll all be like go guard you trying to get me in trouble here <laughs> and then you can like go like open up the laptop and the guy is like i'm expecting important messages don't do that and then you can go in the kitchen like press the microwave repeatedly and like the button will go like beep 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 and it'll like blow up like the whole microwave will explode and they'll all be like gordon what are you doing <laughs> so like it definitely like they had that detail in there which i always thought was really cool and like the npcs responded in a realistic way mm-hmm. too which was was an awesome detail. I just also love it. It's so funny because 1998, it was a serious story with a totally different tone, but it is kind of funny playing it down in, in 2020 because I just love the voice acting of all the scientists. They're so mm-hmm. much fun. Gordon, like I can't even replicate the voice, but they all just have that like typical cartoon scientist. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Totally. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anyway, don't shoot. I'm a member of the science team. Right. You know, if, if you think of the actual plot of that game is totally just doom. It's like we expanded mm-hmm. much of a teleportation technology and then a bunch of things invaded the space. Right. And you have to shoot them all. But I mean, totally yeah. much more sophisticated style. But, but the way it's told, it doesn't feel anything like doom. And it's much more all. contextualized in, in terms of like, why would this be happening? Why, who, why would you be involved? Um, you know, we know. Uh, you just said behind before we started the podcast that Doom Guy's name has been confirmed by John Romero to be Doom Guy. Doom Guy. Whereas Morgan <laughs> Morgan Freeman, uh, Gordon Freeman, Gordon is the name of our protagonist. We know right away who he is, where he went to school. He has a family. You can see little details about it, or you can ignore them. Um, see what yeah. books he likes to read in his locker. Mark Laidlaw books. Yeah. Or does he have a Mark Laidlaw book? He does. He's got like That's, two of them in his locker. Uh, in Doom Guys, in Doom Guys' defense, he does have books that he reads to, as we saw in Doom Eternal. But anyway, mm. well, well, that's true. So. <laughs> true. <laughs> um, yeah, like this. This game is just a tour de force in environmental storytelling and set piece design, um, which some of which hasn't aged as well. I think you know, twenty two years later. Uh, but but. I think if you go back and you play the original client, even it's still a very compelling game. Uh, it is mostly it just is. the visuals have dated, but like now you can play Black Mesa, which which is a uh, that. How did you find Black Mesa, Oren? Uh, I just played through it this past week, and very positive for the most part. I think that the team at Crowbar Collective, which is basically just a fan developer who decided to remake Half-Life. They did a really great job taking the mechanics of Half-Life 2, but applying them to Half-Life, so it does feel like a new experience. Uh, The one thing that was different that I thought was kind of jarring when I was playing the game, because I was like, I don't remember Half-Life having this. The the end of the game with Mm. the fourth dimension is way longer in Black Mesa. They made it like four chapters longer. And I remember- They completely redid it. Yeah, from top to bottom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so that was an interesting surprise. I don't know how I feel about it because I I kind of like how the first game just kind of ends once you get to the fourth dimension mm-hmm. and you fight that final boss. But yeah, it's it's neat. Uh, play I saw it. an interview with with Gabe Newell recently, and he was talking about like he's having like his whole career like working on Steam and like you know he's working on this like brain interface like plugs in like your spine. You can like control computers, and then he was like. He was like, people are like, well, what is the one thing you worked on that you regret? And he's like, Zen. (laughs) (laughs) The level of Zen in Half-Life 1. So I thought that was just hilarious. Like, I think that's like, he still is like 
mad about how that turned out. Um, and then one more thing I wanted to mention about Black Mesa specifically was, uh, so there's a guy, a, a mapper named Dario Casali, and he worked on Plutonia for mm. for uh, which is a, a Doom Two expansion pack. And they hired him. Valve hired him. He worked on Half Life One. He worked on Half Life Two, the expansions, and Alex. Um, so that guy's Valve veteran. You know, mm-hmm. he uh, was went to go back and play through Half Life One, and he was like, you know what? I should just play Black Mesa. Why am I playing the original game? Mm. So like, that's in my opinion, like an endorsement from Valve because I mean that guy's like one of the Half Life OGs. Yeah, that, that game's at least pretty pretty compelling experience, and I think it's its own thing. It is you know, its own but, thing. It's pretty neat. I felt like I was playing Half-Life 3 as I was playing it. So mm. if, if if they were able to achieve that in me, that's an accomplishment unto itself. Um, it's it's yeah. good. It's really good. I, I was really impressed. It technically could be a Game of the Year candidate because it came out in 2020. So That's true. Yeah. Although it, it like... It was. I played it in like 2016 because it's been, they've been slow dripping the game out. Like, like they were like, "Well, we got it's the first Zen. out, but, but Zen wasn't done." Well, they, but they did change it forever because I replayed. They did change a significant portion of it this year, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually different." And there are many sequences that are not the same as the original game, and different. Like some of the puzzles are different. There's some environmental uh, physics puzzles that are obviously not in the first game because there's like no physics system. Um, like. Right. Going back to Zen, it's interesting that there are these games that kind of stand as like extremely important games that have just like significant portions that suck, like Dark Souls has <laughs> like like the entire last portion Lost of Dark Isolith. Souls, or at least Lost Isolith and the Demon Runes is just bad. But but mm-hmm. you and I will easily go to bat and say oh, that's the greatest game of all time. But in yeah, Half Life sure. has this, in, you know, Zen, which is kind of just a really. I remember at the at the time people were like, "I love Half Life until it gets to the fucking platforming," because uh, you have to do this like yeah. intense platforming, which is which With is a long jump. Yeah, which has always been really hard in first person games, and in 1998 was just triply hard. I have to just mention this: we're talking about Half Life. The namesake of our podcast is from Jump Crouch. Me telling Aaron to how to get into the pipe in the hazard course in right. half-life ones so like <laughs> i have to just shout that out like there's no me not saying like jump crouch like that's it yeah. right there no that's that, <laughs> that is that is part of the reason why we did this particular episode uh and you know along with it being an important game but yeah I, jump crouch yeah for sure i also wanted to mention uh just like the in terms of half-life one the design so doom has that thing we talked about like the orthogonal enemies i think half-life does that as well like you have all the different alien types and they all have distinct sounds they that they they play when they see you that when they they take damage they have mm-hmm. different blood colors even mm-hmm. um and it, i i i think like the design of the game is aged well in that regard like it's still a fun shooter it still mm-hmm. plays really nicely the guns feel great mm-hmm. um i still think the the human grunts are some of like the smartest most fun and they might be with the smartest enemies compared to modern games but like they're, they're still fun. just really fun they're yeah. fun enemies like they're well designed like i think black mesa they weren't as good because they based them on the combine enemies mm-hmm. from half-life 2 who were just not as it's difficult. So what they did to make them hard was they made them super accurate in Black Mesa. So they just mm. sniped the shit out of you in Black Mesa. <laughs> so so I want I want to talk about that. I, I was playing Black Mesa and uh, I was having the game was like pretty easy when I first started playing it. I was playing it on normal, mm-hmm. and the first four chapters were pretty easy. And then you get to the chapter. I think it's called like something Hostiles or something. We got Hostiles. Yeah, C-1A3, we, we, man. yeah, yeah. That mission. When you get to that <laughs> mission, the difficulty spikes times a thousand because they are mm. all of the soldiers are just hyper accurate. 
Yep. <laughs> they are just hyper yep. accurate and they take so much damage. And uh, I'm not sure. Did you have trouble with the assassins? The female assassins? They do like the flips and stuff with the pistols? Yes, yeah. Every human enemy I had problems. Like mm. big, yeah. big problems. And then you get to the regular enemies, the, um, you the know, aliens. The, the, the aliens, and they're, they're way awesome, easier. Yeah. Um, one thing I do really appreciate, though, playing through it now is with the head crabs, for example, um, when you try to shoot them with a gun, it's pretty hard to kill them. But if you just bait them and they jump towards you with the crowbar and you hit them, it's way easier. And I think that's that kind of intentional game design where you have to be resourceful is mm-hmm. has aged really well in Half-Life. And because there's so many there's so many games I play now where where they the game will give you all of these upgrades, right? And all of these ways to kill enemies. But but at the end of the day, I can just shoot them in the head, right? I don't have to use all of this stuff, so I just end up playing with one play style. With Half-Life, you're really encouraged to use every every weapon in your skill set. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um what Definitely. do you do you guys feel the same way about that? Oh yeah. Definitely. Definitely. For sure, I, and that game has a nice variety of guns. Like it has the called the in the console, it's called the Egon, which is the gluon gun that shoots like the big. It's like the Ghostbusters gun. Mm. It even has like the backpack. Right. It's like the <laughs> BFG of, of Half Life mm-hmm. and uh, the Goss, which is the charging. It has some fun weapons that like I, I was thinking about like weapon design in games and like how like how people do it and like it seems like if you think of like a, a new gun on the top of your mind, like would it actually be fun to shoot? Like I think they did a good job with the guns mm-hmm. in that game. Like they all feel they're fun. And like they're all pretty well, they're pretty well balanced for the most part. Like the little snarks are such funny enemies. Like you throw the, like little living grenades, you throw at the enemies, and they just oh, like yeah, shoot yeah. them apart. Forgot about them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to just shout out the uh, the horror elements of that game, like the zombies falling through like the weak roofs and like crawling through vents in the darkness and having somewhat of a real light real time flashlight. When you press F, you could actually mm-hmm. shine light in the darkness. Like that was really a cool thing that I feel like didn't exist when that game came out um, no totally and same with the fact that black mesa is like a real place like it's a it's it's a series of interconnected levels that you load in between whereas like doom it's like you got to map one you got to map two you got to map three half-life you have you can progress kind of it's different it's like quake 2 did that as well mm-hmm. um and i don't quake 2 came out i think 97 yeah like, so a year before but i think half-life did it much better i think the map design of half-life is way better than quake 2's well, it yeah, it's it's the first game like I'm saying that has represent uh, really representational game design in part because it's the first time that technology sort of allowed for that to make to make a world yeah. that looks somewhat realistic and it's the game that really just after that we don't see abstract level design like we saw in Doom again. Whereas all the games before that had to some extent abstract level design, I think maybe not Duke Nukem had sort of representational but like Half-Life sort of cements a lot of trends that that just What about Goldeneye? Because they looked somewhat realistic in Goldeneye. That was 97. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They did look somewhat realistic. I think if you go back and look at them, they look that realistic. But yeah. you're, you're correct. Yeah, for they, sure. they, they were more representational than abstract also. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to expand on what Kevin said about the horror elements in the game because uh, I remember Shinji Mikami, the developer for Resident Evil, he said that when he was creating Resident, Resident Evil... Every time you saw an enemy in that game, you felt like you were in a room with like a live crocodile. Like there's mm. this feeling of there is this this abomination in front of you that can kill you if you don't do the right thing and you don't think rationally. 
And I have that same feeling in Half-Life. There, there are times in that game where I'll just be going about my business, trying to make my way through Black Mesa, and I'll just come across something that I haven't seen before, like this giant, for example, like this giant alligator that shoots acid at you. Mm-hmm. And the first time I saw that, I, was, I, I just tensed up because I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how powerful this thing is. Mm-hmm. And like, I think the first thing I did is I just shot like one pistol at it and then like it turned around and shot acid at me and I freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that that game can capture that feeling of like, whoa, what is that? What the fuck is that? <laughs> you uh-huh. know, it's Definitely. really impressive. You know, what's um, interesting for me. So I played Half-Life Uplink maybe very briefly at our cousin's house. And I remember thinking it was such a great game that I later had my dad buy me the Half-Life collection. However, what was not in it or I didn't know how to use it was the original Half-Life. So I actually played Opposing Force, Mm. which is the Half-Life 1 expansion pack where you play as the military invaders and Blue Shift much more when I was younger than I played the original game, Hmm. which is interesting, I think, like... I I'm potentially more nostalgic now with Opposing Force than I am with the original, despite having played the original technically before. Thank you, Randy um, Pitchford. Uh. I know. Thanks for making. I I it's funny because like I have such a I just don't I'm not really big on Gearbox these days, but like yeah. I think Opposing Force is a good game. Mm-hmm. Like even though it adds a bunch of silly nonsense to the game, I I do like it and it's fun. I, I yeah I, I don't think it like belongs in the universe of Half Life because it's just nonsense, but. it's a it's a it's a fun game let's talk a little bit about the dlc because half-life in and of itself would have been a landmark title but the things that it brought particularly with its modding scene and its multiplayer are like some of the most the biggest deals that you still have today uh half-life shipped with uh, half-life deathmatch which is just a very rudimentary deathmatch but then they crowdsourced their um multiplayer and it, by by releasing mod tools and level making tools, and they they ended up doing two things that that are kind of profound. Uh, they took the team that had made Team Fortress on Quake, in Quake Two and hired them, brought them in house to make Team Fortress Classic uh, for Valve as as a Valve product, and then they found a team that was making a little game called Counter Strike and brought them in, and hired them, and now we look at Team Fortress Two, Counter Strike Go. Those are like two of the biggest games that I mean, particularly Counter-Strike Go, which is the like at any moment on Steam, there's like a million people playing it at the same time. Um, yeah. Huge. It's still a big competitive, massive game that people talk about constantly. Yeah. I, I don't think there's been a competitive FPS historically that has had the staying power of, of Counter-Strike. Like Counter-Strike's been around since what, 99, 2000? I don't know. 99 or 98, yeah. So, and it's still like top one of the most top played, most talked about games. So yeah, there's there's no question that I mean, longer than Call of Duty, longer than anything, right? Really, it, I mean, it also started this trend of like, hey, like we've got these cool tools. What if we give them to the community and see what they can come up with? And we look at some of the games that are like the biggest deal have come from these mod tools, like Dota. Uh, League of Legends, those were based off a mod that was made for uh, World of Warcraft. Counter-Strike was based after a mod, uh, obviously. Warcraft 3, but yeah. What? Well, Warcraft 3, not World of Warcraft, but yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> World of Warcraft. <laughs> a mod of World of Warcraft. <laughs> yeah. That'd be good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, like, we don't need to talk a lot about Counter-Strike, but it just it's just, it's very interesting. And also then, obviously, Valve went on to start 
uh, Steam, which is like the dominant force in in the in PC gaming marketplace. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know why I got Steam initially? The reason I am on Steam was because this mod that I played for Half-Life 1, which was called Sven Co-op, I used to play it back in 2003, 2004, was not, no longer supported the in-game client. You had to get Steam, and I didn't know what the hell Steam was. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll make a Steam account. So uh, I made a Steam account, and I remember hating Steam back when it came out. The mm. game's crap. But it did let me play Sven Co-op online, which was an amazing experience. Mm. So <laughs> That's how I played a lot of my Half-Life 1 was through Sven. But I played Half-Life 1 a lot of single player as well. Mm. You know, it kind of reflecting at the beginning of this podcast, what you said, Aaron, about how Half-Life is the Citizen Kane of first-person shooters in many respects. It, it, in a lot of way, in a lot of ways, Gabe is kind of like the Orson Welles in that everything he did, he he started some major trend. Like I, I mm. remember with Orson Welles. Um, with Citizen Kane, with The Magnificent Ambersons, with Touch of Evil. He didn't make a lot of amazing films, F for Fake, but the ones he made changed cinema. Like, F for Fake was, like, the first big cinema essay film. Mm. Citizen Kane was the first modern film that, uh, that, that used so many techniques like deep focus and and uh, stuff like that. And, and non-linear storytelling. And, yeah. Non-linear storytelling, documentary footage. I think mm. the first 15 minutes of that movie is just documentary footage of mm-hmm. Xanadu. Right. <laughs> like, no one has done that before. With Gabe, uh, the, he did the Steam sto- store. He, did, um, he started narrative storytelling with Half-Life. With Half-Life 2, he pioneered the physics-based combat. Um, it, it, it's truly... Remarkable. I even remember in 2007 when the Orange Box came out, and mm. that that had Portal, Team Fortress 2, Half Life 2, and all the Half Life 2 DLCs for sixty dollars. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. was huge. That was that was huge. Oh, yeah. We're like, how can how can anybody have like this amazing deal where they're selling these five incredible games in one package? And I feel like that started its own trend. So it, it's pretty. So it is an apt. Uh, comparison saying that Gabe is right. kind of like the Orson Welles of games to be clear I, I'm saying Half-Life isn't just the Citizen Kane of first person shooters but of 3D gaming because I think if you look at the influence of of Half-Life like most obviously you'll see things like Bioshock and Call of Duty like Call of Duty owes everything to Half-Life yeah uh, it totally does but but also games like like The Last of Us 1 I feel like takes even though it has different storytelling s- styles uh takes a lot from Half-Life like the these sort of way to do a linear uh 3D game was really like that whole textbook was written by Half-Life and I feel like any game that's come after that is taking some amount of influence from it from that and Half-Life 2 yeah definitely yeah, it's interesting. I mean, oh, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, w- I was just going to add that uh, um, Half-Life and Half-Life 2, one, one other thing that I really appreciate about those games now is so there's something about the linear design because when you play the Naughty Dog games, right, there's usually a companion with you uh, telling you what to do or the character is talking to him or herself kind of helping you navigate the environment mm-hmm. half-life 2 and and the first half-life gordon freeman's a silent protagonist but the game design is is desi- it's designed in a way where you know what to do intuitively 
but it's st- mm-hmm. it's still a linear experience, which is, I think is remarkable. Like I feel like I'm exploring Black Mesa, mm-hmm. even though it's a linear experience. Like there's this, there was like this time where I came across this giant acid pit, and I didn't know what to do. But then like I just naturally looked around. I found a ladder, and like okay, I went up the ladder. The ladder left up, led up to the rafters. I went into the rafters, and then I found a pipe that exploded. That was. This, that that I could fit in, and then I went into the pipe, and I was able to journey forward to the next area. And it's amazing mm-hmm. how intuitive that is. It's mm-hmm. uh, do, do did you guys have a similar experience with that? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. When I think back to first playing the game, some of that stuff was like again, like three D games were new, so like problem solving in three D spaces was something that I didn't have, you know, twenty years of experience with at the time. So, sure, so some sure. of those things were were more challenging and took some some problem solving but I, I do think that it's a game that flows really well and keeps you going um, and, and really yeah. like it, it 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 you know like set the stage for how to like progress someone through take from take them from you know a to B to Z in, in a good uh, logical order I also think I, I think back on it I'm like was that the first game that I can think of that had like those really big set piece spectacles I don't think it is but it definitely is one of the ones that I can remember being early on like I, like when you first fight the Garg, like the giant uh, alien tank guy with the flamethrowers on his arms, like and you run away from him on the tram, like that's like a total like movie kind of set piece moment. Right. Or like fighting the Apache helicopter on the uh, the dam, you shoot mm-hmm. it down. Like the way it falls and blows up was like such an like an awesome thing. It all happens in real time in that game, which is really mm-hmm. cool too. Or shooting the Osprey down the, hel- the, hel- the military helicopters, like the guys are like par- they're like you know jumping out of it i just mm-hmm. love the way that they did all that stuff and and the fact that you could blow it up all, all in real time was really i thought it was really cool and like the destruction like it was all scripted but like black mace is always coming apart at the seams in that game like it's constantly blowing up and like duke 3d had that before but like really not it wasn't nearly as remarkable as half-life the way watching this stuff get destroyed and everything breaking was really cool in that mm-hmm. game well, well like that kind of goes to what aaron was ke- getting at earlier which is, I think, the reason why it feels like it's the first game that had set pieces is because the game had such a fresh take on pacing. Um, there are a lot of moments in that game. I, I, before Half-Life, to my knowledge, a lot of games just threw action at you, right? But Half-Life, there's a lot of quiet moments. There's a lot of just exploration. There's resource gathering. And then you get to those giant set pieces where like a giant helicopter shows up and uh, soldiers appear, and it's like a huge set piece. So I think part mm. of it, it has to do with pacing. Um, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Valve, and t- I think Valve like invented the term quiet time as like you always need to have a quiet time after, your, uh, after a big bombastic moment. Um, one thing that, yeah. that I think Half-Life doesn't get enough credit for is I've never played a game where I had more fun smashing cardboard or uh, wooden boxes oh yeah <laughs> i'm of course being sarcastic that is the one thing about that game that is just like miserable to play through now is having to smash every box or have fomo that you're going to miss a med, a med pack or some armor mm. but the crowbar is such a satisfying fast it is satisfying yeah i always love that yeah, the crowbar. I, I gotta say, Gordon Freeman's forearm strength must be so amazing because he can just like do these heavy bashes in mm. less than five seconds. He can do like seven of them. Like his yeah. forearm, man, that guy's working out. 
Yeah, he's he's yeah. pretty serious. Uh, you know what I also want to mention about specific Gordon is like, and I think this really he really is like the first character that I know of. Like he's not a soldier or like a superhero or like like he's just like a scientist. Like right. he's not not that a scientist is an everyman, but he's much more of like a non-action hero archetype character. Right. Which I really don't think any shooter game. I mean, Goldeneye was before that, and that was your secret agent. Nothing was like that that mm-hmm. I can think of, or a character that maybe people could quote relate to more or not. I don't know, scientists maybe not, maybe, but you know, it just it's, it, the fact that he wasn't like a big, strong, you know, '80s kind of action hero like Doom guy was, or right. you know, that's that's definitely like a an interesting new thing I think at the time because I, mean, I think of shooters now like they're almost always like you're just some regular person. Like mm-hmm. it's that's a very common trope now. It's like you know, you're Nathan Drake or you know Ellie or whatever you know booker dewitt i don't know uh i have a question for you guys because i actually don't know this why did they settle on the crowbar as their melee weapon was that a random thing like we're just gonna go with the crowbar or uh that that is a good question i don't know the answer i think um yeah i don't know i mean it kind of it kind of personifies gordon as being sort of like a he's not a soldier but he's a worker yeah, yeah, that's what I really appreciate about that because you can definitely see that in Bioshock as well because the melee weapon in that game is a wrench. Mm-hmm. So, so I think uh, the crowbar adds a lot of character to the fact that he's not like this super soldier who wields this army knife. He's just using a crowbar, and I think that's like intuitively, yeah. subconsciously, it really sets the feeling of being vulnerable in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's actually true. I know the the wrench. I think is an homage to uh, the System Shock One, but the wrench, right? You get a wrench, I believe. But in that game, you're just a hacker, so maybe maybe that would be an example of a game where you're not a super soldier. Well, you got yeah, that's true. In System, System Shock, Shock One, One, just that you are a soldier. Yeah. I think you're a hacker. Maybe I'm thinking two. You're a hacker. I, I don't know yeah. who you are in one off the top. Oh, of my one, head. one. You're mistaken. saying one. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and one. I think you're just like a random survivor. Yeah, yeah. You pick up the wrench and start splicing away. Um. So, closing thoughts, guys. Would you recommend uh, people who haven't played Half Life, people who are listening to this podcast and wondering, is this a game I should try? What do you think? I would say before. Like my my intuition is say play Half Life two. It's a little more smooth, refined. But like, I think Half Life one's a better game to play. I think it's more fun to play. Like as a game overall, it's a more fun like experience to to play. Like the gameplay, I think is better. So I would say yes, play it. I think it scales pretty well on modern hardware. I think the engine like all like their stuff is all fine. Like you don't need a source. There's no source ports for it anyways. But it doesn't need that like like id games do. Like it. Oh, there it is a source fines. port actually. <laughs> Someone get the source, source code port. for Half Life? No, the source. It's it's the source oh, engine. Port. That's true. You're right. <laughs> it's on source. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'd say yeah. I'd say definitely check it out. Like it. Like if you haven't played it, like it's it's a it's really fun. <laughs> like I, I love playing it. So yeah. Orin. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend playing it today. I'm actually pretty fresh to, to Half-Life, rel- relatively speaking. The first one I played was Half-Life 2 in 2006, 5, thereabouts. Seven. Oh, Seven. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so I played... Um, so, so I've only played through the campaign a couple of times, but every time I've played it, I felt like I've been going on an adventure in a way that games typically don't do. Um, mm-hmm. The... 
the, the feeling of exploration that you get from that wide linear structure and slowly figuring things out and slowly progressing and that feeling of progression, I think is pretty unique to Half-Life. I mean, there are other games that do it as well, but I think Half-Life is really, um, um, it really, it's really the emblem of that type of design. So I'd say, I'd say play it, play, play uh, the original or just play Black Mesa because I can attest Black Mesa is pretty, pretty sweet. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I would echo in with the chorus here. I think if you are someone who's very passionate about the history of games, as, I, as I've argued in the past, everybody should be. But go back and play the original game or play the source version uh, because it, it is really, it's really interesting to step back in time and see something that was a revolutionary game and play it for the way it is. But I also think if you're somebody who's like, eh, I have limited, you know, I get a little picky when it comes to older games or something. Play play the uh, Black Mesa version because it is a really mostly faithful uh, and and really just high quality update to Half Life. So I, I think you know again, like I said, this is one of the most influential and important games um, in, in in gaming history. And and it was it was interesting being there at the time to see it happen. It it, it, it get like there's. I can only think of a few moments in history that kind of had that same level of like, oh my God, this is like changing the way I think about video games. I think Grand Theft Auto 3, the first time I played Grand Theft Auto 3 was, mm-hmm. was a similar moment. Um, Definitely. Maybe Oblivion and maybe PUBG to an extent. But like other than that, I can't think of anything that really had that same sense of just like, wow, like games can do this. Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I also just think so. uh, I just think in modern video games, especially if you because in so many first person shooters there or first person storytelling games, there's usually um, like an audio log or like there's somebody in your ear or there's mm-hmm. so, there's somebody telling you what you need to do. And that is that is. Uh, at, would you kindly? Yeah. Would you kindly? Mm-hmm. There, there, there's there's always some sort of objective that it's always prescribed what you need to do. In Half-Life, what's so refreshing about it is that it, it, the people at Valve, they, they leave it up to you to figure it out. And I think that's rare in first-person shooters. So right. I, that, that would be the thing I would sell it on. If you want to play a game, that a first-person shooter that respects your intelligence, Half-Life really is that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uses environmental cues to sort of you know, progress mm-hmm. the mechanics along. As well as the story, uh, yeah. So play Half Life. I one of the one of the best games, uh, one of the most important games ever made. I, I think I don't know if it gets on my top ten list, but 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 I definitely appreciate it, enjoy it. Uh, yeah. I, I, any last words, guys? If I had to give it context of like games that like I go back and play, I play Classic Doom a lot more than oh, yeah. I play Half Life. Yeah. Like I'd much rather go back to playing Classic Doom. So like in terms of '90s FPS games, like. Not my favorite gameplay, but very right. good gameplay still. Yeah, like today, perspective. Yeah, yeah. I would. I I find Doom much more fun to play. I think it's it's just a much more jump in and out kind of game. Um, but yeah, but it sure. doesn't get, put you in that sort of contextualized like center. You know, chief player in the plot of a, a story that that Half Life right. does. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my dog is growling. Uh, Ollie, calm down, buddy. Uh, that's that's all we got for this episode the next episode play along with us will be predictably halo uh the so we'll be hitting the trifecta of uh first person shooters i guess 
And we'll be back next week with a regular episode. Uh, Yeah, so take care of yourself, guys, and we'll be back soon. Bye-bye.